Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone. This is Stuart Crawford, and welcome back to another episode of the MSP Show, or as I rebranded, the MSP Marketing Show here on Blog Talk Radio. This is a program that we put together every couple weeks to talk about things going on in the managed services community and bring in some interesting guests to come and talk about stuff that they're doing. And uh, our guest today is uh, a very good friend of mine, somebody I've known for many, many years in the channel. Got a chance to see uh, him every few off, every few months in uh, different industry events. He's known as the virus doctor, Mr. Ken Dwight. Ken, good morning to you, sir. How are good things morning. in beautiful Houston? You just came back from Channel Pro. Tell us, uh, Great. Tell us yeah, what's going on with you these uh, days. Well, a lot of stuff. And, of course, most of what I do is related to malware. But the last couple of weeks, Microsoft has, has generated a lot of additional business with their bad Windows update that uh, uh, you've probably heard about and, and a lot of your listeners have, have probably been dealing with. Uh, so I've had more than my share of break-fix business over the last couple of weeks. But the, well, I, I know a couple. I know about a couple of our machines that blue screened after the reboot here. So I know that's uh, you know after applying some latest patches. Yeah, and in fact, uh, I heard that that all surfaces broke, or at least they lost their ability to connect to the USB ports, and that's a interesting thing sometimes. But as you say, blue screens were part of it too, and it's only in the last few days that Microsoft has has finally put out some uh, some updates that that updated the update to the update. <laughs> so, <laughs> and maybe maybe that's what happened to my server's machine because I lost my keyboard uh, before, well before Patch Tuesday, but. Uh, the screen, you know, the touch screen still worked and all that, but I couldn't do anything on the keyboard. It was, uh, anyway, I had to go back to, I, I, I just used it, I used to use that excuse, can I go buy another laptop? Well, and unfortunately, there are a lot of people that, uh, that bought new computers. Uh, there are a lot of sold in the last couple of weeks, thinking that was the problem, but uh, it's, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. Actually, oh, I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. So, tell, so you know, Ken, for the, for the, eight or nine people on this program today that are uh, not familiar with your work. Tell us uh, a little about yourself. <laughs> well, thank you, Stuart. Uh, uh, as you say, I'm known as the virus doctor, and most of what I do these days is teach other techies how to do a set of tools and a procedure I've, I put together uh, over the last really nine years. I started uh, uh, teaching these workshops, and of course, most techs, when they're dealing with a malware issue, they take one of two approaches. Either they run a bunch of scans and hope for the best and kill a lot of time they can't bill for, or worse yet, they wipe and reload everything, thinking that's the only way to get rid of malware. And my approach is, is neither of those. It's finding the malware directly, ripping it out by its roots so it won't come back. And uh, uh, say the first one of those that I did was almost nine years ago. It was April of 2009. And uh, at the time, it was a 16-page little uh, workbook I put together. Uh, now it's a, a two-day workshop with about 16 hours of content and over 150 pages uh, worth of documentation and some tools that I've personally developed. 
and it's not just running a bunch of scans hoping for the best. So at this point I have graduates in 42 states and seven foreign countries. As of next week, it'll be eight. I have my first Kiwi coming to a, work, a workshop uh, next week. So your workshops, uh, Ken, are they in Houston or do you kind of travel across the country doing them? All of the above. Uh, I, I do normally one public workshop per month in Houston and two public workshops online. And I also go to different cities, uh, either for, for private workshops, if there's, a, for instance, an MSP with enough techs that need to train. And when I say enough, typically about five would be enough to justify an on-site trip. Uh, but I also have done public workshops in different cities. I frankly haven't been successful at marketing enough to, to put enough people in those to, to make them practical. So I've, I've backed off on the public workshops in other cities for now. But I still like getting on airplanes and, and going places. So uh, anytime there's a good excuse to go somewhere, if we've got enough people to, to justify a workshop, I'm happy to do it. Well, absolutely. You know, like I said earlier, we're going to have you come out, hopefully come out to our Orlando one that we're putting together right now. And then um, also we're going to see you in Chicago come up at uh, the IT Compass event. At, uh, you know, I can't remember the exact dates off the top of my head, but sometime in the second half of August out up there in Chicago. Yeah, so, I think it's 26, um, 27, 28, something like that. Toward the end of like August. That, yeah. I know, I, know it, I know it's kind of right after I had to move a high-performance club meeting so I, can, so I can attend it. So, Ken, tell me, what, what is the opportunity for out there for the computer technician, the managed service business when it comes to malware removal or virus protection? I mean, you hear about it all the time. Are you, are you seeing your candidates and your graduates, you know, building successful anti-malware, malware removal virus, you know, consulting type businesses after they graduate from your program? Absolutely. In fact, that's a pretty common thing that a lot of graduates will do is, is develop a fixed price malware removal uh, offering. And what they found is they can make a very successful, profitable business out of that. Because again, the, the typical traditional ways of dealing with malware uh, are very time consuming. They're, uh, they may or may not get the desired results. And so, especially the MSPs, a lot of times when, when they see they're dealing with a malware issue, they just kind of grit their teeth and say, oh, crap, what, what's this going to turn into? How much am I going to lose on this one? And uh, following this methodology and the tools that I have, uh, they know with a high level of confidence, an hour completely cleaned up, and the machine's going to be running better than it was in the first place. Uh, and so the people that are doing it on a where cleanup are anywhere from, from $99 to uh, $199 a tip. And that still beats what you get from a, a geek squad or uh, other, especially if you're talking about a consumer level or a small business, a home user dealing with a malware issue. Those are kind of their choices. And so the MSP or the break fix shop can be a real hero when they really solve the problem uh, at a reasonable price and they make money at it at the same time. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds really interesting, Ken. So, um, I mean, obviously there's a big movement towards cybersecurity in the whole IT space and you kind of are one, one component of it. When, when you're talking with your, your, your people in your boot in your workshops and those who are, and, and I was very lucky to be part of your graduate call a few weeks ago. Uh, you know, what are they? What are they telling you, Ken, when it comes to you know the the evolving landscape of malware viruses? Uh, and besides what you already told us, you know, is there any? 
do they are they have the 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 vision to see other opportunities there wrapped around cybersecurity? Sure, that's the beauty of it. And in fact, one of the things, and, and this, this sounds kind of strange, but I can understand the thought process. I've had some people say, well, I don't want to do that because if I can fix a virus in an hour, then, uh, and I was getting two or three hours worth of billable time out of it, that's money out of my pocket. And and as I say, I never even thought about that because my whole goal is to possible and, and solve the client's problems. But the other side of that is uh, once you're in there and have, have removed the malware and got it done in an hour or less, there's plenty of other stuff you're going to see and be able to do that will bring a, a valued service to the client and still stay at that two hour or maybe three hour billable time, uh, whether it's updates that haven't been applied or software that's out of date or uh, you see some, some other rogue software that snuck on there kind of uh, install that will happen in the background. There's just a lot of other opportunities once you're in there. And uh, again, at that point, you're already a hero. You solved the problem. And so uh, you've increased the trust level with the client and uh, there's no telling what other opportunities you'll discover while you're there. And when I say while you're there, most of this can be done remotely. It doesn't have to be on site, in person, face to face, especially if you have an existing relationship with the client, you know you're gonna get paid and it's just a matter of solving their problem as quickly and efficiently as possible. And, and, and Kim, was your background in, um, in, in security, in virus removal, that kind of stuff before you uh, launched your, uh, your current uh, virus doctor uh, service, Were you, uh, did you kind of, or did you kind of just happen to stumble upon this? Well, some of each. Uh, I actually kind of stumbled into the, the malware especially, but that was back in 2002. And, and so I, I was specialized in malware and actually uh, took on the DBA for the virus doctor uh, 15, well, 16 years ago now in 2002. Uh, just really kind of being the, the, the Paul Revere, spreading the word, the viruses are coming, the viruses are coming. Because mm -hmm. back then, uh, people really didn't understand uh, how different malware was, and we weren't even using the term malware back there, everything was viruses, but they thought that, that viruses were things that were done by bored kids or uh, people that just didn't have anything better to do. But in 2002, we encountered a virus called Klez, K-L-E-Z, and that was an eye-opener for me because that was the first one I saw that was making money at it. It wasn't just vandalism or bored kids, it, it was a moneymaker. And that's when I saw that, that what people thought they knew about viruses was completely out of date and, and inaccurate. So I kind of got on my soapbox back then. I was speaking to chambers of commerce and networking groups and rotary clubs and, and just trying to, to get the word out that viruses aren't that what you think they are anymore. They, they, they really are something you need to be concerned. And so after a few years of doing that, somebody said, well, you ought to write a book about it, which I did back in 2005. It, it was a, an end user book mostly. Uh, talking about all the different aspects of, of malware, and uh, that became the best-selling book on viruses at the time. It's it's out, of course, since 2005. But then uh, in 2009, I was having lunch with an MSP friend of mine, and he just kind of casually said, I wish I knew what you know about viruses. And I said, well, I, I could probably teach you some things, and that's when I put together uh, kind of a checklist and a collection of tools and a methodology, and, and that was the beginning of what has become my uh, virus remediation training workshops. So, so give us a run through, Ken. Though, how does what, so? What do you cover in the in the in the workshops? Like, you know, it's a two day event. So, you know, 
what uh, what happens in those two days? Well, we start off talking about generally kind of malware, and again, how different it is now from what it was a long time ago, and from what people think they know about it. And uh, from there, I I really and, and these workshops are really intended for techs that have a good level of experience. Uh, the, the nitty gritty of dealing with malware and, and cleaning it out and again ripping it out by its roots. And so in the overall workshop, the next piece is a pretty in-depth coverage of the registry. And of course, most techs know about the registry. They have some familiarity with it. In fact, a lot of them will tell you, oh, I know all about the registry, which nobody knows all about the registry. Uh, but the point is to be good and effective with malware removal, you need to, to have a thorough understanding of the registry. So we actually spend a few hours on registry internals. And from there, we get into the different types of malware. And I break it down into four categories because there are four different types of malware that need to be identified and dealt with separately and in a specific uh, sequence. And so the first thing we talk about is encrypting ransomware. That's the most visible type of malware these days. It's the one that you hear the most about. Now, statistically, in 2017, which is, of course, the latest year we have full year statistics for, less than 1% of all the malware was actually encrypting ransomware. And so uh, as a percentage of the, the types of malware that's out there, it's a very small percentage, but it's a very highly visible percentage, and it's one you're going to be seeing more and more because it's, it's extremely that, those, yeah, I was going to say, those are the ones that make the news, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and in fact, uh, there, there's kind of a variant on that now because there are, are some things that appear to be ransomware that, that really there's no recovery from, and they're just uh, more politically motivated and uh, trying to, to cause damage instead of, of making money. And so you need to be able to, to make the differentiation between what's really encrypting ransomware that there's a chance of recovering data and which is uh, kind of bogus ransomware uh, that the data is just gone. But gotcha. that is, if, if you are dealing with an encrypting ransomware uh, attack, it's going to be very obvious, very visible, and you have to get that out of the way first. And so that's in the overall triage, that's the first category of malware to deal with. From there, we move on to other what's known as, as rogue software. Uh, generally software, it's also referred to sometimes as scarewares. It's again, very visible, trying to scare the user into giving up their credit card and buying something they don't really need, whether it's a fake antivirus program or fake hardware diagnostic or whatever. Uh, it's bogus, but it's very visible. And uh, so you need to deal with that next. Then we get to the third category, which is what I refer to as traditional malware. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about traditional malware is it goes to a great extent to keep the user from knowing that they're infected. Because that traditional malware is sitting there either turning that computer into a member of a botnet or, or stealing information, identity theft, credit card theft, or something like that, or uh, harvesting email addresses or some other method of making money. And the point is the longer it stays on that computer undetected, the more money they're making. So they go to great extent to keep the user from knowing they're infected, unlike the ransomware or the other rogue type of software. So detecting that type of infection is the second hardest thing to do, but that's where uh, a lot of the grunt work comes in, in terms of the methodology. Uh, and then there, there are likely to be multiple occurrences, multiple processes running that are associated with traditional malware. But one by one, you find and deal with those, and then that gets to the to detect, and that's rootkits. Uh, rootkits are embedded within the operation itself. 
And so there's specialized methods of dealing with those and, and again, special tools that will detect and get rid of them. But those are the four stages of dealing with and, and wiping out the individual malware infections, starting off with the obvious ones, with the encrypting ransomware, and then from there into the, the rogue software, then traditional malware, and finally rootkits. But once and, and I think Ken, I think I think I think you want, as long as there's users, there's always going to be a need for somebody to remove malware, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And and one thing that's different about what I talk about versus what most vendors are talking about. Most of them are saying, if you have our software, we we prevent all this stuff. But uh, obviously, that's not true. Uh, there is no uh, one program out there, or even a combination, that's going to give 100% protection. And so uh, there is some risk of every user getting infected one way or another. So the starting point for, for my workshop is, you've got an infected computer, now what? So now along the way, we obviously back into some of the things that, that you can do to protect the user from future infections and the multi-layered approach and the different types of things that need to be done and specific products. I do name names and I point out some vendors and products that I uh, recommend and enjoy working with and some others that you want to avoid at all costs. Uh, but it, it's a process. The other thing that uh, comes into play sometime, a lot of people that I talk to about uh, the workshop and about the need to uh, puff themselves up and say, well, we don't do break fix anymore. We're strictly an MSP. And, and, and that's you know, what I call the MSP myth. Because the, the reality is, yes, and I know that, that uh, most of, of your clients and the people that have been in the business for a while that are professional about it are MSPs and they do that as opposed to break fix work. But the reality is that some, if not most, of those MSP clients are going to get infected or have a problem that requires a break-fix mentality. They're going to have to have a way of dealing with a broken system, whether it's malware or whatever. And of course, so yeah. I just kind of like to yeah. remind people of that, that, that uh, yeah, there's no pure MSP business out there. You're going to have some break-fix aspect to it. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. I mean, there's always going to be uh, some sort of computer repair, um, virus uh, remediation that has to occur, and that's definitely going to be, you know, somebody's going to have to fix something, right, Ken? I guess yeah, that's and, what you're telling us. At the end and, of the day, somebody's got to fix something. The, the other example, a perfect example, is what Microsoft did to, to so many users just, you know, in this, this last few weeks. Now, that's not a malware scenario, but it's definitely a break-fix scenario. And I personally dealt with a lot of the broken USB ports and several of the blue screens with inaccessible boot devices. And so there again, it, it's a break-fix scenario. It requires troubleshooting skills and identifying where the problem came from and what to do about it. That, and that's exactly what I was sharing you before we started recording today's call was that's what happened to a number of systems in ours. We had to actually back up, back out updates in order to get the systems to boot up. And uh, yeah, it, uh, it was uh, it, it was a little bit of a headache for for us, and yeah, we needed we needed on-site support. Our managed service provider couldn't help us because they couldn't get into the system remotely because yeah, it's a blue they screen. were not online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to keep you completely up to date, I don't know if you've heard, but Microsoft on March finally acknowledged the problem, uh, and they said we have fixed the problem. Then in the fine print, they said, well, there were actually four different problems. We fixed one of them. We fixed the the USB ports. And that was with a new update, it's 4090913, that came out March 5th. On March 6th, 
they updated the documentation about the update to the update, and so we've updated it. <laughs> and so in the second update, six, they fixed the inaccessible boot device problem. Now, that's a few days ago. The last I checked, they still have a couple of other problems that came out as a result of those updates, and uh, one of them involves Active Directory and some corruption there that, that sounds pretty serious. I have not run into that one, but I definitely have run into the, the broken USB ports many, many times, and the inaccessible boot devices a couple of times, but as of uh, a couple of days ago now, that new update, and again, the, the, the update number is 4090913 that does fix those problems. And I've had several successful reports of, uh, of that update being applied automatically and fixing the problems. Excellent. So, Ken, you know, give us, um, you know, your prediction for the future of the malware uh, antivirus world, you know, where where is where's it going to go in the next few years? Is it going to get worse, or, or do you think we're eventually going to get on top of this? Much as I don't like making predictions, that's a real easy one. Uh, there's absolutely uh, no end in sight for where ransomware is going. Uh, it's such a, a profitable business model, and of course, when ransomware. Now, let me just make a distinction here because it, it still confuses some people. Uh, ransomware that when we first saw it on a wide scale was in 2012, with what was known as the FBI virus. The FBI virus, for anybody that wasn't around back then or didn't happen to see it firsthand, locked up the whole computer. It replaced the desktop with a full page screen that said, we're the FBI, we've detected something illegal on your computer, so it's been locked until you pay the fine. And, and you couldn't do anything until you dealt with that. Uh, that at the time was a fairly simple uh, piece of malware to deal with. It actually went through four generations that became more and more sophisticated and harder to deal with. But the point is that locked up the whole system. The user couldn't do anything. And initially that, that, that fine that they required you to pay was $100, which then went to $300. But the uh, point is once you dealt with that, the data was fine. Uh, the, the big jump was about a year later in September 2013 when crypto first So that's the distinction I'm making between ransomware and encrypting ransomware. With encrypting ransomware, the, the computer still works just fine. The programs are there, the anything they wanted to, they get on the internet, they could do all their usual stuff, but their data couldn't uh, see or, or update any of their data files. So uh, encrypting ransomware initially also started at a fairly low price point and uh, then in the interest of keeping it from being refundable or uh, the bad guys not actually getting paid it's pretty much all gone to cryptocurrency now mostly bitcoin and there again it started off at, at the equivalent of a hundred or three hundred three hundred dollars and now uh, with the increasing value of bitcoin and uh, the bad guys realizing the value of that data, it's gone up well into the thousands or tens of thousands and, and in some cases much more than that. And so again, it's a very profitable business model for them and uh, uh, it's also becoming much more targeted. For instance, healthcare is a huge target. I think most hospitals and clinics and healthcare organizations by now have been hit by encrypting ransomware. and. Uh, Typical payouts there, or at least the ransom demands, are anywhere from ten or twenty thousand up into the millions of dollars. And mm. uh, they, it's you know life and death is, is involved here, and so uh, a lot of them have paid the ransom. 
And uh, that's not necessarily my recommendation, but statistically, a high percentage of encrypting ransomware, if you pay the ransom, you will get your data back. So it is an option. And you, and you, may, and you make a hit again, right? You know, you hear about that a lot. I personally have not seen anybody that's been hit, paid the ransom, and been hit again. So it seems like a logical thing to expect that you've been identified as somebody that will pay the ransom, uh, but I have not heard of that happening. Okay, good. That's good. That's good. So, and of course, and after also, being hit, then presumably yeah. you'll put additional protections in place to keep it you, from happening. Well, one, one would think anyways, right? You would think. Yeah. So, Ken, you know, I also heard um, a number of uh, new threats out there that are encrypting ransomware without the ransom component. That's true, and, and those are, are back to what I was touching on earlier, the ones that are uh, what I'd call faux ransomware. Uh, they, they look like ransomware to pay, uh, or there's no way to get a decryption key. And uh, a couple of examples of that, that that happened last year cost billions of dollars in, in, in damage, and uh, uh, not Petya was one of them, and uh, uh, Oh, my mind's just going blank on the other one. They happen in a few months of each other. But in both cases, they're actually politically motivated to, to just cause harm. And there was no way to decrypt the files or to pay the ransom. Uh, and I'll, I'll think of that other one as soon as I don't need to anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's right. That's how it usually works. When you, when you hang up and go, oh, yeah, now I remember what right, it was. Right, right. So, so, Ken, you, one of the things that I really appreciate about your program earlier this week or last week when I was on it was you kind of went through and, and shared your event schedule. So where can people go and, uh, you know, rub shoulders with you, maybe grab a coffee and then get to know a bit more about you other than, you know, looking up on your website, the virus, uh, what was the virus, the virus doctor.com. Actually just uh, the virus doc.com. Yeah. Yeah. Virusdoc.com. Uh, yeah. But where, where are you going to, where are you going to be uh, hanging out over the next few weeks? Well, uh, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I was in Dallas this event. I'll be going to the ASCII conference in Austin in uh, April, and uh, the one you and I will both be at in Chicago in August. I generally try to get to at least four, five, six events per year, generally uh, in, in the South or Southwest, but again, I go to Chicago, I go to, to, to California, Miami, wherever. Uh, obviously, anybody that's in the Houston area that, that wants to have a cup of coffee or, or just talk, I'd be happy to, to meet with them. Uh, or anybody wants to send me a plane ticket to wherever you happen to be, uh, we, I do that too. Uh, but as you and, say, and that's you know, and, that, and that's a, that's a good thing. If you have a larger scale managed service provider, which kind of where I kind of work in a little bit more, Ken, is that you will actually travel to a company and uh, sit down and train their entire technicians and all their yeah, staff. Absolutely. Yeah. And I generally try to limit the classes to a maximum of 10 attendees, but if it's a, a, a private workshop just for one organization, then we can go bigger than that. There was one that had 29 people that needed to be trained, and we broke that into uh, three separate sessions with 10 and 10 and 9. Because it is, Wonderful. Uh, I say it's that down and dirty, it's in the trenches, and so it's good to be able to have the interaction and ask questions and look at specific machines and registries and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and even on the private workshops, I do some of those uh, of online as well. Additional benefit of the online presentations is that they are recorded, and so they can go back and, and uh, uh, rewatch certain sections that they want to remember exactly an example that I used or what happened when they did something or other. Uh, that that's handy. But 
still in an ideal world, in-person in training is more effective. Uh, that way I can, can see who's getting over, who's checking their Facebook and whatever, uh, which mm -hmm. I can't always do that when, when it's uh, an online training. Yeah, for sure. Kind of for sure. So well, I already mentioned your website, thevirusdoc.com. Uh, what, uh, right. what other contact information are you willing to share with the folks listening today, uh, Ken? Uh, actually, for your group, I'll give out my cell number. That's the best way to reach me. My website has the uh, the landline, which goes right to voicemail. But uh, any anybody that, that you know can call me on my cell. That's 281-04-3958. Give, give us that one more time, Ken, because I think you cut out just a little bit there. Okay, 281-704-3958. Great. Folks, I highly recommend you uh, look out to uh, look up to Ken and um, and you know learn a little bit about his program because this virus stuff and malware and ransomware, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. And uh, always a good resource to have in your back pocket, uh, especially from the training component and what and what he does after the training is completed and his communities and stuff just keep people abreast of what's going on. Ken, thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, and sure, then you know, I look forward to. Uh, I look forward to uh, perhaps seeing you in early June in Orlando or definitely in Chicago uh, this coming August. Yeah, and keep me posted on your, your, your May 31st, June 1st event. I'll, I'll put that on my calendar. Great. Uh, thanks again, folks. And uh, you know, stay tuned uh, for the, to the MSP show here on Blog Talk Radio. We're going to have a, a great new lineup coming up here in the next few weeks. We're working on uh, getting uh, some really good speakers to come on and, and chat with you all. Ken, thanks again. Thanks again, Thank everyone, you, for listening, and we'll see you again in a couple weeks. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.